Welcome to the podcast, To Sit by the River with KD Matthews. Unfortunately, KD lives in the armpit of America, not New Jersey, but Florida. No disrespect to Florida, my grandmother died there. We're talking digitally today, adrift somewhere in the etherweb. But I know that KD is going to keep us anchored. KD is a no-nonsense dog trainer, known for his straight-up, clear-eyed analysis of human-dog relationships and the human imbalances that topple over into dog misbehavior. So, Katie, what's going on, buddy? (laughs) What drew you to dogs? Uh, And after years of working with countless dogs, patterning them and picking their minds apart, are you still interested? Oh, gosh. All right. What drew me to dogs? Um, I was scared of them. 100%. I was that kid who... Uh, as the story, as as the legend tells it, according to my parents, um, you know, I guess a dog had jumped into my baby carriage and scratched me. And I had a mother who was the type to like pick you up and take you away from the danger instead of push you into it and force you to deal with it. So I had developed quite the the fear of dogs. And I am a self-admitting nerd and very obsessive about things. And I didn't like that I was afraid, like, especially once I started getting into adolescence, um, you know, like getting like 10, 11, 12 years old. And I remember one time I was with my father and we were at a family friend's house and they had a big black Labrador. His name was Nico. Never forget him. And Nico ran around the yard as we pulled into the driveway and I like hid behind my father. Now, I was too old to be doing that. <laughs> and my father even said the way home, he's like, that's embarrassing. Don't do that again. I'm like, yeah, but I'm scared. And that was <laughs> when it, that's when it clicked. And I'm like, okay, I don't want to feel like this anymore. So I became obsessed with dogs at that point. Now this is pre-internet. So I would go to libraries and those places where they have these things called books and you get books and you read them. And I know it's a novel concept nowadays in 2022. Um, it shouldn't be. That's a whole nother story. But I, you know, just immerse myself in dogs. And at the point in time that this was taking place, it wasn't a lot of dog training books. It was dog ethology. It was dog breeds. It was l- just learning about dogs in general. And I mean, back then you could have named any breed. And I would have told you where it originated from, what its historical purpose was, you know, uh, what the current state of the breed was. And then I convinced my parents to let me get a dog. And I had narrowed it down to, you're going to laugh at these two choices, right? I narrowed it down to a Labrador or a Carolinian bear dog. (laughs) (laughs) Those were the two. Um, I just thought the bear dog, how how apropos, right? Um, I thought the bear dog was just this, you know, according to books, you know, what they, the breed standard and general characteristics. This is in like the early 90s, by the way, mid 90s. Um, this is fascinating. And this dog was amazing. But I did have enough common sense to say this is probably not a good idea to get as a first time dog owner living in a semi suburban rural environment. Um, so we ended up with the Labrador. And that was my first dog. And I failed miserably as a dog owner. I mean, miserably. I could not control that animal. Um, I got in, you know, finally found some books, some old Keeler Method books. And I started out, you know, I was very heavy handed. Um, 
yet I did not have that dog's respect. I did not have control of that dog. Yet my father, who hardly ever interacted with the dog, would come out and the dog would do everything yeah, simple things, you know, like always the dog would always come and call. The dog was always next to him on leash. And my father wasn't a dog trainer. He didn't know anything about dogs. Um, we ended up placing that dog. Uh, my parents gave me an ultimatum after about a year. They're like, get control of the dog or he goes. Um, I couldn't get control of him. Just so happened, a guy my dad worked with was a, I wouldn't even say he was a, a gun dog trainer. He didn't like take clients or anything. He was a hunting guide. And this is in upstate New York, about three hours north of the city. And what he would do is he had several dogs and he would go about an hour and a half south to a hunting club where the guy, the, the rich guys from the city who want to feel like a, a hunter for a day, they come up and him and his dogs would take the hunters out and his Labradors would actually flush and retrieve. Um, and he'd been drooling over my dog since we got him. He said that you have an amazing dog. If you ever get in a position, well, I mean, he was there the day we called him. Um, and he kind of took me under his wing a little bit and started to introduce me to training and introduce me to the concepts and the principles. And from there, it just, it became an obsession. It became a passion. Um, that's what drew me into it. Uh, so fear brought you in. Yes. But you've hopefully long conquered that fear at least on the surface for the most part i mean I, my hair goes up every once in a while you know dealing with some of the dogs i have come to deal with in the years you know what started out working with pet dogs then getting around very high-end working dogs in the in the capacity of i say working you know like your belgian malinois dutch shepherds some german shepherds not many um but dogs that were being groomed or trained for potential uh, law enforcement prospects, green dogs that would eventually end up potentially on military contracts or something of that sort in that realm. And I've been very privileged with a lot of luck to meet some incredible people in that field that got me around those dogs. And I'll tell you, I mean, to this day, you know, you get in a room with a true one percenter dog, those unicorns absolutely believe in their hearts that they are the most superior being in the room you get goosebumps every once in a while you know they give you that look and you're just like yeah i i know who you think you are i get it we're cool let's just be cool oh it's them being other animals i think which keeps it interesting absolutely that's what drew me even deeper so what drew me to dogs but what got me into training is just the the fascination I have with innate genetic, innate temperament, innate personality that we as animals have and how those relationships work with dogs. You know, I am a person who, you know, I'm not a textbook alpha male, right? Like, no, man, I've struggled with anxiety through my whole life. I've, I'm the squirrel, man. Like, I, I get nervy. And that made working with dogs so flipping challenging because i mean they read you like a book mm -hmm. and if you're concerned anxious nervous they're like what's your problem dude and based on their temperament they deal with that in very different ways 
that just made me like it more, Kyle. Like, then I'm like, okay, how can I improve myself as a person? Like, I have to become stronger as an individual to become a better dog handler. Uh, and that's what, as you know, my company, Socratic Canine, now is a very a, a non-typical dog training business because I focus on training dog owners. And a lot of what we work on is a, heavily influenced by personal growth and working on yourself as a person because you have to be a better, stronger person to be a better partner for your dog. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think that I'm a different person with dogs than I am with other humans. Mm -hmm. And I want to take the best things from both of those and unify them. And that's a constant struggle. Absolutely. A very rewarding one though, because yeah. you're, you're, it's a win win. You're constantly winning as long as you're working and you're on the journey. Yeah. Uh, okay. I have some train. Do you want to do, do you want to do training or talk politics first? Let's start with some dog stuff. Okay. We'll, <laughs> we'll stay, we'll stay grounded. We'll save uh, dessert for dessert. Okay. So give the audiences primarily houndsmen for this podcast. Uh, can you give them, they have lots of dog experience, but not necessarily textbook experience. Can you give us a brief explanation of the four quadrants of operant conditioning? And then I'll give you some scenarios that we can discuss and see how the various quadrants play out in training. Got it. So that has to come with a disclaimer. Um, I absolutely believe in teaching and talking about to a degree the air quotes science behind dog training and i do that because i fully understand and respect the eye roll that it will bring from the old guard from the seasoned dog men and women right people who might not even be able to tell you what they're doing but damn it if they're not the best at it um i get that nowadays in current culture there's a lot of people calling themselves dog trainers uh entering into this world all they know are operate conditioning. All they know is the science that they've read from a book. Give them a dog and watch them trip and fall on their face. And what that's done is it's made conversations and dialogues about the quadrants, about operate conditioning. It's it's made it almost, it's branded it in a way that's a little unsavory now because a lot of the people talking about it can barely train a damn dog. Like mm. you hand them a leash. Let me see your quadrants now, buddy. Like, let me see what that book you've been reading now. So I'm, I'm trying to hold the middle ground on it and say, I get that. And I absolutely respect that. But it doesn't hurt to at least know about it a little bit. So that's my disclaimer about operant conditioning. And honestly, I think operant conditioning gets way more attention than it should because people forget about Pavlov and classical conditioning. And I personally feel that Pavlov's research in his work is so much more profound and impactful in life with dogs than Skinner's laboratory with the box and the rats. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Four quadrants. It's, it's not a training method. So, so explain what are the differences between operant and classical? Got I it. think people are familiar with it, but it's always good. So to put it in very basic layman's terms, there's going to be some bookworm nerd who doesn't know how to hold a leash who will like pick this apart. No, I don't care. Um, classical conditioning. Let's think about learning by association. And the key distinction between classical 
and operate conditioning is when we're talking about classical conditioning, this is what people might have learned in high school or college psych 101, um, Pavlov, the salivating dog. He rang a bell, then he fed the, you know, the dog would have no reaction. Then he rang the bell and he gave food. And if he did that enough times, he could ring the bell and the dog would salivate in anticipation of the food coming because it associates the bell with the food. Now, the key thing here is salivation is an involuntary response. You don't make yourself salivate. So grabbing the Garmin GPS collars and the dog starts spinning around in its kennel, is that an involuntary or voluntary response? The oh, If we're talking about spinning, it's typically seen as a dysfunctional expression of arousal, a dysfunctional expression of excitement, right? Um, some might argue that that is an operant behavior, meaning it is a deliberate behavior. It, there's some classical conditioning taking place. I don't. I wouldn't want to debate about whether or not the spinning itself. Oh, I didn't is mean to focus on the spinning. I just meant the dog gets but excited yes. in the kennel. What's happening physiologically in the dog is absolutely classical conditioning because that grabbing of the collar is now associated with getting that nose to the ground and going to do the thing, the one thing that the dog lives for. Now, operant conditioning is learning by consequences, and it's much more focused on operant behavior, which means deliberate behavior. For And we've heard the one quadrant of the four more than any of them, and that's positive reinforcement. Everybody knows that one. I mean, I think if you say that, it automatically buys you a ticket to whatever afterlife you covet or um, you get moral superiority just by saying it out loud. Positive <laughs> reinforcement makes you a better person. I feel like a better person now just for saying it. Depends um, what circles you're in. Uh, <laughs> we might This one might be more full of positive punishment. Uh, and you know what? I, I, I'm smiling for a reason. Um, yeah. I'm in good company. The positive reinforcement, it is something, a consequence that the dog experiences after a behavior or errath person, any sentient being, that consequence results in the behavior increasing in frequency, duration, intensity. You get more of it. And, you know, the textbook, you know, every time my dog sits in front of me, I give him a treat. So now that dog will be sitting in front of me all the time because he's learned that if I put my butt on the ground, I get a treat. Um, there's another way you can increase behavior. Negative reinforcement. This term is probably the most misused. People take the word negative and they automatically think bad. So when they say, oh, well, I, you know, negative reinforcement's bad. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Well, you know, I don't punish a dog. It's like, well, negative reinforcement isn't punishment. It's reinforcement, which means it's going to make something stronger. I mean, you reinforce things to make them stronger. Think of the, the words positive and negative, not as smiley face or frowny face. Think of them as addition and subtraction. So positive reinforcement is I add something after the behavior. I add the treat. I add the pet on the head. Um, for a dog, you know, for, I would assume I have zero hound experience, but, you know, the dog learns that if he follows that track, there's going to be something at the end that he wants. So that reinforces the behavior. 
Um, probably not the best example because there's a lot of instinctual drive there, um, but you get the idea. No, I, I think something I want to talk about, I, I think the primary way that Houndsman used positive reinforcement. So are you saying that that would be negative or positive reinforcement? No, that's positive reinforcement. That's positive. I, I think the primary way that Houndsman used positive reinforcement is through hunting. And it's such an enormous fulfillment for the dogs that it's immensely powerful. Uh, but it's not something that the... the uh, handler themselves is participating in with the dog exactly. and I think, I think there's a place for adding in some sort of positive yep. reinforcement from the handler in order to create that that uh attachment absolutely now negative reinforcement is we're taking something away to strengthen a behavior um an example outside of the context of dogs would be and i've heard some people recently kind of not like this example, but I don't care, is the seatbelt buzzer in your car. What does the engineer of the car want you to do? They want you to do something. They're trying to create a behavior, not destroy one. They're trying to create the behavior of you buckling up. So what do they do? They give you a couple seconds and then they make an incredibly obnoxious sound. Your car makes a noise. When you buckle up, what happens to the noise? It goes away. So now when you get in your car, in theory, you'll buckle up faster. And mm -hmm. there's even a little pause at the beginning. So you can avoid hearing that sound altogether if you buckle up fast enough. So it's creating a behavior by removing something that was placed in the environment that you probably found aversive. Can you give us an example of what that looks like in dog work? Absolutely. Um, the One of the main examples is when people are using an e-collar to teach let's say a recall so depending on what level stim you're on you find a level of stimulation that the dog doesn't like i can't stand it when people try to sugarcoat that stuff to placate the the well to placate oh, we'll certain to people don't worry um and they're like oh it doesn't hurt it's not it hurt uncomfortable these are all subjective words <laughs> um it's something that I don't want the dog to like it. And then when the dog turns and comes towards me, I make it go away. So then the dog learns, oh, when he says come or here or whatever it is, I'm going to turn around and sprint because I want to avoid that feeling. And what ends up happening is you always give the dog a little chance to, just like the seatbelt buzzer doesn't come on right away. You know, once a dog understands what the, what the stem means and understands the concepts here, I'll give him a chance to avoid it altogether if he hauls ass and stops what he's doing and turns and runs right back to me. Mm -hmm. So I'm removing something to create and strengthen the behavior. The dog learns he can turn it off. Just like I learned I can turn off that buzzer, the dog learned he can turn off whatever that is. And you can do that with a pinch collar. You can do that. You can do it with a flat collar. You probably won't get much results with it. But, um, you know, a typical example is, you know, some people, when they teach a dog to sit, they lift straight up on the leash, lift straight up in the air. And the dog feels that pressure on the collar. And he doesn't like it. And as soon as his butt hits the ground, what do we do? That pressure goes away immediately. So he learns, I can turn that off by doing something. And that thing he's doing is whatever the handler wants him to do. So those are the two ways we create behavior. That's the explanation given to us by the science of operating condition. Now, mind you, guys have been doing this with their dogs forever. Just because they didn't know the terminology of it is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Did we do negative punishment? Well, we haven't done punishment yet. So oh, okay. the other side of things is when I want to stop a behavior. 
I want the behavior to go away, uh, perhaps never to come back again. We Just like on reinforcement, we have positive and negative. So we have positive punishment and we have negative punishment. Negative punishment is probably the least used of all of them. And there's still a lot of debate when people start talking about examples of negative punishment. Sometimes I think some of the examples don't really make sense that people give. Um, I'll give you an example that doesn't have to do with dogs first. It's your kid back talks you or gets fresh. So as a consequence, you take away the Xbox. I'm removing something as a consequence. That in and of its that explanation in and of itself, you know, for for the listeners, their wheels might be turning right now to try to bring that over to dogs, and they might be drawing a little bit of a blank because there's not a lot of things with a dog where we can take something away in such a manner that the dog truly understands it. Now, I've done it in bite work and teaching dogs to bite um, and to to bite people and apprehension work. And there, what I'll do is if I have a dog who, let's say we have a dog who at the end of the leash, they're barking a lot, they're making a lot of noise. Sometimes we don't want that because they're expending a ton of energy doing that. All that, it's it's obnoxious and it's, it's a wasteful use of energy. So if I have a dog, most of these dogs that we work with in that capacity, they really want to bite you. Like that's the reward. They actually enjoy it. They've been bred to want to bite you. So if I'm approaching a dog, I'm standing in front of him. I got the bite suit, a sleeve, whatever. And I start walking towards him and he starts barking. And and the handler and I have agreed we don't want that. I want to stop that behavior, right? I'll start backing up. I'm removing myself from, oh, you're making noise? Forget it. You ain't going to get this. Bye. And then if the dog is quiet, I'll come in and give him bite. So I'll positively reinforce him being quiet. And I'll negatively punish him making noise. It's not very common. It's There's not a ton of application for it that I, I personally do not currently believe there's a lot of application. I would love for someone to show me more about that. Um, Positive so, punishment's the easy one. Yeah, we know we know punishment. So, so negative punishment. It seems like the issue with the dog is sort of temporal in that uh, humans are able to uh, make longer time frames for action and consequence. You know, the, this thing. Uh, oftentimes, I think we fail at uh, creating associations between the handler and the punishment or, or reinforcement that's going on in the dog's behavior. We are intending to address as this is something i've noticed as sort of with yes. hunting dogs uh, the dog runs trash and you don't feed it for two days or you don't take it hunting the next time and you or you beat it when you get home which is a very human view of action consequence based on our sort of like time frame uh, and it seems obvious to us and we're really frustrated when the dog doesn't get it but it's completely lost on the dog they don't associate that i ran a deer yesterday and i haven't eaten and i i think they don't associate i agree uh, with you uh and it goes on to create further behavioral issues. The one thing I was, you know, thinking about in preparation for this was uh, letting when I go to let the dogs out the kennel. You know, they're perpetually excited to get out in the morning, and they're jumping on the fence, jumping on the fence, and it. I st- step back and don't open it until they're you know calm and sitting down four feet on the ground, whatever. Uh, and then I go to let them out. And we might do that, you know, three or four times, walk up, reach for the door. Nope. You know, go back. Yep. 
is that's is that negative punishment to a degree and this is where the converse this is why i i'm some i somewhat limit the depth to which i get into this with my own students because as long as they understand what you just explained that application of these concepts I don't want them getting too far off in the weeds, trying to split hairs as to what quadrant that falls in. And this is where that disclaimer came from at the beginning of this, is you have people out there who get... it's Now, it's one thing to have a fun dialogue amongst peers. That's one thing. It's another to get completely lost down the rabbit hole of trying to put something that's very organic and natural into a box, into a freaking quadrant that some guy who didn't even couldn't train a dog to save his life probably you know came up with hmm. and it, and we can become limited by this academic need to define everything to the to ad nauseum it's like and i tell my students all the time the consequences they flow yeah. You can flip from negative, what you just explained, you flip from negative reinforcement to positive, re, uh, negative punishment to positive reinforcement so fast and so fluid that this is where I think now people are obsessing about the science of dog training and they've completely lost the craft of it, yep. of the course, art of it. And that, that statement might I'm going to assume that statement will resonate. And there's probably some guys holding up a, a glass of bourbon right now of your followers <laughs> or your you know listeners who are going to be like, hell yeah, because it is a freaking craft. It is an art. And it's okay to, I think it helps us to understand things like, you know, operant conditioning, classical conditioning. But at the end of the day, you got to work the dog in front of you. And you really, it takes off from there and it, it becomes a craft and it becomes an art. I think we, yeah, totally. And I think that there's a lot of craftsmen in the audience, uh, but you know, like basketball, right? You train drills and you know the rules and you have plays and you, you know, it's all sort of theoretical until the game starts. And then when the game, game starts, it's all flow state. I think both are good, right? And yep. uh, having this sort of groundwork foundation can be useful. Uh, so most townsmen are familiar with negative reinforcement harsh word probably the most common cattle prods e-collars electrified positive chicken. punishment you mean po po positive punishment sorry <laughs> <laughs> there we go uh no uh i don't i don't got it uh 55 gallon drums whatever and there's a place for some of those things but i don't see a lot of positive reinforcement outside of the uh direct hunt you know when a dog yep. when a dog is treated it's you know they get petted up and they provide themselves with a huge amount of positive reinforcement uh but could you talk about uh associating positive reinforcement with the owner is it is important uh and what ways can we incorporate it outside of the hunt in our general day-to-day -day interactions with the dog and it's pro it's absolutely taking place but it's taking place and because maybe someone never heard a dialogue like this, or they were never taught all the nomenclature and the jargon, they're doing it. They just don't know what to call it, or they don't care to call it anything. But I mean, every time you pet that dog in the head, because you know he likes it, well, why'd you pet him? Oh, he sat next to you. Or, oh, he settled down. Or he was in a state of mind that you liked. You know, I think another factor here is also the the context and the environment in which people 
live with their dogs. And I say live with figuratively because from my very limited experience with various types of hunting dogs, you know, even outside of the hounds, you know, a lot of these dogs are kennel dogs. They're outdoor dogs. So the nature of the interaction between handler and dog is very contextual and somewhat limited. Now, I'm sure there's guys who maybe they got the hound that is also their best friend and he's in the side of the pickup truck with them when they go to the feed shop or the grocery store or wherever they go. That person's going to have more interactions where it would definitely benefit them to have a, a working knowledge of these different ways I can impact behavior. And when the dog comes to me, yeah, I'm going to pet him. Every time he comes to me, I'm going to pet him just because I like him feeling comfortable coming to me. I like him realizing that I'm a source of good things. It's not just what's out in the field. It's not just the lion or the bear, you know, like, you know, I'm, I got good stuff for you too, man, because who knows when you're going to need to recall that dog, whether it's in civilization or downrange, you know, like you, there's going to be a time where you need that son of a gun to stop what he's doing and turn on a dime and come back to you, whether he might be getting ready to encounter uh, something you don't want him to get into or you see a hazard that he doesn't see, or for whatever reason, you got to turn around and get the hell out of there. And a recall and having a dog who will come back to you like that, you know, being able to understand how to reinforce that behavior so that he loves doing it is, you know, is very powerful. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Uh, so, there we talk about genetics in terms of drive and i think a huge amount of drive comes from genetics and is born into a dog but you've probably got a good amount of experience developing drive in a dog uh what are the types of things that we can do you know obviously something that i'm going to do and one of the best things is you you get them on game and that's sort of a self-fulfilling thing but what what can you do to build drive in a dog or is it pretty much it's there it's not Oh, you can absolutely build it. You can absolutely build it. I would take, and now I, I'm just going to take what I know about behavior and I, I'm going to play here because I got zero <laughs> experience in your game, right? No, that but doesn't matter though, I don't think. I would take that puppy and I would introduce him to those odors at a young age and I would make him obsess about it. I would make him love getting to the odor, getting to the target. and you know, getting creative with how I collect odor, what I put at the end of that odor. It might even be food for a young pup. Like he follows this odor, he's going to get food. His genetics are going to program him to lose his mind when he gets to the, the the animal as he as he or she matures out in the field. But at home, like I, I, I want to build some frustration. Like I'm going to get him so that he just wants that. Well, how? I might have him on a leash. I might have him dragging me. I might have him pulling me to that source. I'm going to get him to that state of mind. He's super fired up about it. And then I'm going to make him work harder to get to it. A longer track, a longer track, a longer track. Keep building, building, building. You know, there's a term that they use in bite work and, and you know, bite sports, teaching those type of dogs. We call it drive capping, where it's you're getting the dog really fired up 
And in those situations, we typically will make the dog do something for us, even if it's a simple obedience behavior or, you know, being in a certain position before we release them and let them explode into fulfillment, which mm -hmm. would be biting someone. Um, you know, with, with hunting, I mean, I can only speculate that there's an endless number of way, scenarios that you could set up for that young dog to where as he is insane for this and building it, even building some frustration to it. So he learns that the harder he works, even if he's not getting to the source right away, if he pushes, 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 he'll get to that source. It's the same principle to how if you're crate training a dog and why you, if they're barking, you never want to go over to the crate because if you go over one time, well, now his drive, desire to get out, he's learned the behavior of barking is going to get him there. Well, if you feed that one time, meaning you go over to that crate one time, well, the next repetition, the next time it happens, he's going to bark twice as hard. He's going to bark twice as long. And he's because he's building and building and he's learning perseverance. And I'm going to take a stab in the, in the dark here and say that, you know, you want a hound that has perseverance, meaning however, however cold that track is or how much distance and ground and adversity in the environment and the terrain they have to cover, they're going to push through it, if that makes sense. What, what does putting them in a position or giving them a command before the release do to the dog's drive? Well, well the, it's the concept of getting that dog so that they're also, there's an added purpose that might not apply in, in your world. And that is, we also want the dogs to be incredibly clear-headed. <laughs> they need to be functional. We need to be able to control them while they're in drive. Mm -hmm. So having them still being engaged with us in some way, shape, or form, um, that's where the requested behavior comes from. Like, if you do what I want you to do, you're going to get it. But at the same time, they're also building in anticipation. And that's where the drive building comes from is this building anticipation and learning that if I keep doing whatever it is I'm supposed to do, and for you guys, it might be just keep freaking tracking, just keep moving, keep going, keep hunting, keep pushing, keep moving forward, trust your nose, keep going. You will get to the end. You will get to tree that animal. I, th I think the clear-headedness is applicable uh, when when you're driving along and the box starts shaking, they've rigged a hot track. Uh, I, I mean, I'm learning, but this is what I've seen is that a lot of, you know, the, they're restricted by the box and the excitement and the anticipation builds and they build off of each other. They're all howling and going nuts. And and it's it's good because they're building drive. They're ready to hit that track hard. But oftentimes I've seen experienced townsmen will let out the old dog, the cold nosed, you know, just like the clear headed dog who gets there and starts figuring that track out because you don't want to it, it when it's without the clarity of sight, they, they might mess up. Uh, so I think definitely that is a sort of a, a controlled fury is the way to go, whether it's bite work or hound hunting or probably whatever you're doing. Absolutely. But you, you know, to kind of finish the whole concept, yes, you can build upon whatever drive is there you can accentuate you can't put it there if it isn't mm. you can't make it more and that's that's always one of the big struggles that trainers have and even breeders is figuring out like well how much is he got in the tank 
And what can I do with what's in the tank? Is, is he maxed out at his genetic potential? Or do I need to tighten up and get more creative as a handler slash trainer? And that's the age old, you know, that's the quest. That's the journey of everyone with a mm -hmm. dog that, that it has a dog that has to do a damn job. Is there too much drive to which point the draw, the dog can't even figure with a bite, you know, although there's a sort of clarity of head, you know, they've got a three foot mission. It's move from the end of this leash to, I, I know it's complex and you're asking them to do a lot of stuff, but, uh, they, it, is there a point at which uh, there's too much drive and it becomes adverse to achieving whatever you're looking for? I wouldn't say that would be a result of having too much drive. That would be a result of having not enough clear-headedness. And it's up to the handler and the trainer to really work with that. You know, when they're working with these Malinois that are in the special forces that have to go out and clear their downrange and they have to clear a minefield or they have to clear a path for the team to get through like some of those dogs are working in insane weather conditions usually heat especially because our main theaters have been the middle east for the last you know 15 20 years whatever um those dogs are in extreme heat and having to sometimes spend eight hours with their nose on the ground like and and here's the thing like if those dogs mess up it's not that the lion gets away it's that five guys die yeah it's high like, stakes like this the, the stakes are ridiculous um and that's why they get dogs that are of an insane amount of drive, but those dogs also have to be incredibly clear-headed because then they have to get in a helicopter with five guys who are overdosing on adrenaline and cortisol, and they have to like not eat everyone in the helicopter, and then they have to function, and then they have to do a recall because there's something happening. That dog needs to get back to that handler so the dog doesn't die. Um, you know, it's a I don't want to say a balancing act, but there has to be a certain level of clarity and skill and competency from the trainer and the handlers to make sure that drive does not end up with a reckless dog who's going to get himself or, you know, in that context, others, you know, hurt or killed. Yeah. Okay. So, so you can have clarity of sort of clarity of head and also drive in conjunction. They're not exclusive of, of each other. Uh, the, the, Maybe I'm not a hardcore houndsman enough, but also livability. It, not so much an issue with those military <laughs> dogs, but I don't fucking want a dog which is going to bark. You know, it's got so much drive out the wazoo that it's barking on its chain for 24 hours a day, even if it's a killer dog. You know, I'd, I, I'd rather take the mediocre dog who's okay to live with. You know, ideally you have the golden zone. So the Labrador guys, and, and this is something new to me that I'm getting into. Uh, I made a, a good buddy's name's Bob Owens from Lone Duck Outfitters. And he's got a great podcast. I'll give it a shout out. Lone Duck Chronicles. Great, great show. Great guy. He's he's a gun dog guy, right? So mostly Labradors, occasionally a Chessie or some other off-breeds. He does a lot of hunt tests and occasionally field trials. I went and met him and I got bit by the bug and I talked a lot of shit now too. So my next dog is going to be a Labrador because I already told him I'm going to come out there and kick all these guys' asses, even though I've never done it. But as I've been learning about it and learning about the sport of what they do with their hunt tests in particular, what they're having is they're getting drivier and drivier dogs because the evolution of their sport, you know, in particular, they have the super retriever series. I mean, this is like the world cup. This is the the final four. It's a big, big deal. And it's a high, highly challenging event. Well, it started getting difficult to separate the winners. 
So what did they have to do? They had to make the events and the tasks and the retrieves harder and harder and harder. So what did the breeders do? They answered the call and they bred drivier and drivier dogs. So by the nature, and this is what happens whenever you have any type of a breed survey or you have some type of competitive sport involved in something that has a practical application like hunting, you know, well, people are going to get good. Trainers are going to get good. They're going to start doing well. Well, now you got to raise the bar. Well, they keep raising the bar. And that's where the breeders come in. And they're like, all right, well, so now you have bloodlines of usually American bred Labradors. I wouldn't want to fucking own one. Like, they are tweakers, man. Like, they are hot. If you aren't out there every day giving that, that dog a couple 50, 75 yard retrieves, having him swim a little bit in the pond, he's going to be a son of a bitch to handle. Or, or to live with, you know, and, you know, when you're talking about living with and livability and drive, there is a freaking sweet spot, man. There, if you choose to live with your dog, if you choose to do more than have your dog come out of the kennel, come out of the box, hit the other box and, and then go out into the field. If there's any in between that drive matters, but what matters even more than, and that's a whole, you know, a discussion you and I have talked about having is just your ability to live with your dog and understand your dog and build a functional freaking relationship with them. Yeah. And they're beautiful tools. It's incredible. You know, we've talked about this cause I have a pit bull who's, you know, a pit bull and, uh, it's incredible to see something which has been bred to uh, an extreme. And I think that my impression is that the competition coon dogs are like this, especially when there's money in a sport, you know, money mm -hmm. accelerates things and people take it more seriously. But, but even, even in something like big game, Western hound hunting, uh, you know, the, you can create these sort of extreme and incredible creatures, but there's right tool for the right job or right dog for the right family. And I imagine that what you see being a dog trainer for pet dogs is that, or a human trainer for pet dog owners is uh, uh my neighbors got a australian shepherd off of a ranch and at nine months old it was biting all the kids on the legs and biting their arms and no shit and, they, and, and there it went to the shelter you know uh mm -hmm. it it's uh it's an incredible thing that we can breed these extreme animals but it seems like a right right tool for the right job is kind of the question yeah, and you have to under if you're gonna get that if you're gonna have any hopes of living with that dog, you know you really now your ability to understand and build a relationship becomes more important. Um, I do have aspirations to own either a Patterdale or a Yag at some point um, when I get older. I, I, I just had this conversation with a colleague the other day. When you've spent so much time training dogs to do non-instinctual behaviors, which is a lot of what I've done teaching dogs to do things that humans need them to do, like sitting and downing and coming when called and walking in a certain way. Like that's not instinctual. That's, that's a human social conscious because of the way we live socially. We need dogs to do that. When you do that for so long and you are a true dog lover, and I still get excited when I see dogs, I can look at a dog and I don't care what his temperament is, whatever. If I see a gorgeous dog, I see a gorgeous dog. And I love seeing gorgeous dogs. If I see a great a temperament, if I see a dog do something that is just special, I still love it. I still respect it and honor it. 
I want to get into, in particular, I want to get into ratting, quite honestly. I would love to get into ratting because I want to start watching dogs do the shit they were bred to do without me really having to get in there and muddy up the water. I want a dog where I take him and I let him loose and I sit back and I enjoy watching him enjoy the task. And I know I'm going to have to make some decisions when I get to that point. Because if I want to, I mean, we're talking terriers, man. Like, th there's a reason why terriers are small. Because if they were any bigger, they'd rule the world. They would take over, and it, they need to make a horror movie. They got horror movies about everything else. They need to have a movie like, you know, Terrier Town, where like these terriers like get into the nuclear waste and they get really big, and now you have like 150 pound, <laughs> yeah, they, terriers. They like, still rip people up by the feet. They always, even though they could reach the face, they still start with the feet. Chose, the chose thing. to do it down there. Um, well, like living with some of those dogs in particular can be really challenging. And you really have to understand, even if you don't know the nomenclature and you know the words, you, you got to understand how to build a, a relationship of trust and respect. And it, it goes both. There, there's a there's a balance in there, man. So whereas that dog trusts you that you're not unpredictable, you can be hard handed as long as your hard handedness is predictable and it's appropriate and it's fair. And, you know, I, I've spoken with some in particular, some Labrador guys, and I'm like, I want to see you take a two-year-old Dutch bred Malinois, and I want you to treat it like you treat those Labradors. You'll learn real fast about trust and fairness. Why? What's the difference between the two? Oh, that Malinois will put you in the hospital. You might lose a limb. You might lose bodily functions. Your life will be different. But are, Your are, life will be different. They, does it require, does Malinois, is it so sensitive that you can't be heavy-handed with it, or it, it, or it requires it, a heavy hand? It's that... If you're unfair, that dog will fucking check you, man. Mm -hmm. If you're a dick and that correction lasted too long, chances are pretty good that dog's going to look at you and be like, hey, motherfucker, don't do that. That's not cool. That's not fair. That's you're, really interesting. Yeah. And they will come up the leash and they will put you in the freaking hospital. Especially if you get one that was, you know, these are dogs that are bred to be socially aggressive to an extent. You know, while some of them are okay with their handler as long as their handler isn't an asshole because we can't breed a dog to exhibit traits where it totally feels it can dominate a human being like the bad guy because in order to successfully apprehend some guy who's juked up on pcp or whatever the new crank is like that guy might not be scared of dogs he might not be pain sensitive that dog has to go to battle with that guy and not quit because if he lets go or he quits Something someone could get hurt or killed. So you can't expect a dog to carry on that state of mind, but then be like a wimp with you. Like he has to have enough hair on his ass to do that. And anyone who's got that much hair back there, if you're a jerk, he's gonna let you know. As opposed to a Labrador, most of them are it's a completely different temperament, completely different dog bred for completely different things. They're usually pretty resilient to that. They can take a little bit of excessive heavy handedness and they'll just get right back on and go get that bird, go get that duck. You know, they don't typically, they're not going to punish you the way a dog who was bred to bite people will punish you. And you, you know, you can learn a lot about fairness and fine tuning your training and communication. When you have a dog where you will absolutely held be held accountable. If you overstep your bounds, 
And that's where you learn about trust and you learn about fairness. Doesn't mean you got to be soft. Because if you're a pushover, those dogs will they'll make you wash their underwear. It'll be like a jailhouse scene. Um, they'll, they'll own you. They'll own you completely. Um, it's that balance. It's absolutely about, and that word is so cliche nowadays, but it's true. It's applicable. It's mm-hmm. about balance, about being fair. Um, I always talk about um, this book I hopefully will finish one day called My Grandpa's Dog. And it's about my grandpa and his dog that I saw growing up. And he lived on, you know, four acres, no fences, very rural. He had, you know, he had some crops. He had, you know, a horse. And this dog who was never on leash, and never saw the dog on leash ever, was like the most well-behaved dog. He didn't do a focused attention heel. Like he wasn't going to win some trial or go to an agility trial, you know, tournament. But this dog did not make mistakes more than once. And he worshipped the ground my grandfather walked on. Well, why is that? My grandfather didn't do any of the things that I, as a dog trainer, tell my clients to do because he didn't have to because he had something, his innate temperament. If that dog messed up, that dog caught it. There were switches in trees and in the barn all around. There were switches. Mm-hmm. And it so that there was always a switch within a short walk. <laughs> yeah. And that dog caught that switch many times, but never for the same offense twice. Yet he still worshipped the man because he was fair about it. Mm-hmm. It was always, hey, don't do this again. And this, you know, this is what's going to happen. And then when it's over, there was no grudge. There was no hard feelings. There was no ill treatment after it. It was over. He punished the behavior. He didn't punish the dog. Mm-hmm. Okay. I really in- That's a really interesting subject. Uh, on a Related to what you're saying about the Malinois, I think that although a number of houndsmen they don't want to put up with an asshole. What the, I, I've usually heard them called assholes. And I've heard a number of experienced houndsmen who are saying that dog, which was pissing on people at the tree and starting fights with other dogs and was just consistently the biggest dickhead in the pack was, you know, their best dog who they spend the rest of their life thinking about. And I, th- and it doesn't seem to be a purely coincidental on the uh, dog justice idea. I, it's really interesting. I, I don't know what that looks like. Could you I- explain what that sense of fairness looks like for a dog and does it differ from our sort of idea of fairness so that we don't we don't anthropomorphize them and then i think that's where you start misunderstanding things you know an example would be i'll give you an example from my world let's say i'm teaching a focused heel that means the dog has to walk flawlessly his shoulder to my knee he has to be there no matter if i'm running walking backwards spinning in a circle his shoulder is glued to my knee and let's say he forges slightly which means he gets like a half a step ahead of me and i start cranking i mean like he's got a pinch collar on and i go one two three four five cranks that's unfair that's excessive. And there are dogs out there that will take the first one because they know they screwed up. They'll get pissed at the second one and they will fuck you up on the third. Because mm-hmm. it's like, dude, that punishment doesn't fit the crime. And what about a spoiled dog where essentially their sense of justice differs from what you think is the oh. correct sense of fairness and you know you give them correction one and they fucking try to bite yes. your face off yes the and, and i deal with you know i got to deal with that with my clients because yeah, many of them yeah, come to too. me 
And I deal with that with my dogs. Their dogs are, you know, rather entitled. And in that situation, it's not even the reason why the dog does that is it isn't even that he thinks that correction is unfair. He thinks you lost your fucking mind for even giving him any type of correction because that is not the terms of that relationship. That would be no different than a kid slapping their father for something. Like, well, maybe nowadays that's the way things go. But, you know, for me, if I would have, like, corrected my father, it doesn't matter if he was wrong. Like, I would have got lit up. I would have got put through a sheetrock wall. Like, how dare you? You are, this is not the way this communication goes. So a lot of dogs are living that life right now where the minute that the handler, the owner imposes something, and this is usually when someone like me gets the phone call. They spoil the dog rotten. The dog's an entitled prick. And then one day something happens where they can't accommodate the situation. The human cannot accommodate the dog. Like the dog has to go in the crate for something. Or the dog, they're not going to let the dog chase that squirrel or cat. And they stop the dog from doing what it wants. And the dog looks at them like, have you lost your mind, human? You don't stop me from doing anything. And then they get bit. Mm -hmm. It's, and of course, I'm, that's happening so much more now than ever, ever before. Mm -hmm. So the, it's, things have changed since your grandpa's day. And the public discourse, there's a sort of battle of ideas that you're engaging on in social media. And the fact that you're fighting that fight gives me hope uh, as I, I get a feeling that you believe that we can make progress through this route. Can Is there an argument to be won in this way? Can we move forward with discussion and by exposing the public to our side of the issues? In addition to working with dogs for a while, for a while, I also spent over a decade in public education. I was a history teacher. So I know a fair bit about history and the history of the world, the history of human civilization, which leaves me with a little, leaves me with a pessimistic view. I will fight the fight that needs to be fought to prolong our rights as dog of, as a dog owner to do and handle our dogs however we see appropriate. I don't have a long-term optimistic view because it's directly tied to culture. And the only way cult, the momentum of our culture right now, I mean, every culture since history of humanity has moved in cycles. And we're headed in a direction with an amount of momentum that the only thing that's going to change that momentum is when really, 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 really bad shit happens. I'm just trying the best I can to help the dog owners today and improve their relationships with their dogs and prolong and put off what I do believe <laughs> is an inevitability only as a byproduct of a much bigger social saga 
that is taking place now that has taken place numerous times through the history of humanity we often focus i think in this community in this broad community on the ways that this is playing out in the public forum the discussion on social media uh, but it strikes me that while that, there's definitely a cultural war that is uh, it's unclear to me because I'm not sure how to interpret social media it's sometimes the loudest voice you know it doesn't actually represent the majority right. uh, but a lot of the rights that we are losing and it does seem that that's mostly the direction it's going to me uh, especially with you know the ability to hunt, hunt with dogs or have working dogs uh comes through targeted political action from the animal rights crowd as opposed you know they there is a sort of they are it seems hopeless because they are sort of winning the cultural war maybe uh but a lot of what they're doing seems like uh concerted and organized political action completely oh it, it's they are a machine they are a machine with that are very organized and, and here, here's the thing it's those of us on the other side, one of the biggest challenges is organization and unity. Well, someone might say, well, what's the problem? Because we are a population of people who want to be left the fuck alone. There's a certain contradiction that makes the logical, objective, thinking, freedom, desiring, craving individual who wants to do whatever that they want to do with their dogs. Well, it's not like we all get together and have tea three nights a week because most of us truly, for the most part, want to be left alone. And, you know, we get together at things of shared interest, you know, maybe whether it be hunting socially or you're part of a hunt club or you're part of a community of people where you learn from and you learn, you know, different activities. And in my world, you know, there's bike clubs and when I was really heavily involved in that stuff, but even in the obedience community, you know, there, there's people who have similar values who you might get together with once in a while to train and work together. But generally we're a population of people who just kind of go about our day and I'm not going to mess with you. You don't mess with me. Mm -hmm. So that actually makes this whole organi organized movement, I think, a little bit more challenging for us because we're like, oh, oh, we need we need to organize. Like, does that mean we have a club? Does that mean we write letters together, or does that mean like, <laughs> we have to go to like have a like picket or something? Do we have to protest? What's what's that? What does protesting mean? Like, what do, how does that work? Because we're not worried about that stuff. We're just trying to enjoy life with our dogs and and be alone. Whereas this other side is a population of people who are inherently weak, emotionally defunct, and they have nothing else to do but try to tear down people who have things they don't have, like self-confidence and so, a happy perspective of the world. So in history, it looks like to me, over the 10,000 years of civilization that we've had, there's a general uplift from uh, order and control. You know, Although the mechanisms for order and control were less developed at that point, uh, most people had less aid, you know, there's significant hierarchical imbalances and we're living, I think in potentially the most free time, you know, in history, uh, in that progressive swell of freedom versus order, do you see any hope for the future or do you see any sort of organization and movement from this side, uh, that you think is positive or could you outline a way forward? To outline a way forward, 
we all have to everyone has to have a certain amount of personal responsibility in when i do communicate about this thing that i do i might make a more concerted effort to educate versus just being you know fuck the world you know it, it doesn't mean you have to go out of your way but when you do interact there's people that are on the fence right and you know you mentioned just because it's the loudest voice doesn't mean it's the largest voice you know there's a there's a silent majority who's just sitting back watching and i deal with this all the time in the pet world you know many of my clients were people who were on the fence they weren't all like totally seeking me out there was a number of them who i encountered through other means through social media and they had heard some of this rhetoric and this ideology of force-free and purely positive and this other nonsense. And they kind of looked at it and said, okay, it sounds good, but it doesn't sound real. And then they encountered me and my content. They read my book. They saw my Instagram, anything like that. And they're like, oh, see, that makes sense. That sounds realistic. So what I, what I mean is it's, we have to, in some way, shape, or form, even if it's a little bit, if we care about wanting to retain our rights, just be aware of an op any opportunity you have, even if it's a conversation with someone at the freaking coffee shop or at the bar. If, if somehow your dogs come up, be welcoming, enjoy the conversation, and because you might be the representative. You might be the first opportunity that person has had to be properly educated or to hear the other side of the story. All they've heard are the, the purple haired people going, you know, your dog should live on the couch and never hear the word no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so it's sort of a Christian message of hearts and minds to the undecided public in a more great personal change versus organized into political action. Yeah. Organize, organizing the political action, man, that's a that's a big freaking move. And there are groups out there that are working. And there's like this, I don't even know the, his name. I wish I could give him a shout out, like Lone Star Outdoor something. Um, this guy down in Texas whose Instagram is, you know, he's heavily involved in everything going on around the country in terms of protecting hunters' rights and protecting people's rights to do and responsibly participate in the outdoors and you know retain the rights that you know what a lot of hunting efforts actually help the environment and he does a lot of education a lot of activism with that you know i see people like that doing that and getting involved um do we all have to do that i don't think we have to would it help yeah but i'm not going to i mean you're you the bandwidth something. i'm uh, already doing something i don't have the bandwidth to show up at the at the town hall although maybe one day i might have to because that's my responsibility as someone with some type of influence over some amount of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think you're talking about people who just want to be left alone to do their own thing. Hunters are kind of the best and worst at that. And that, that's because of their passion for a certain thing. They're less engaged with these sort of struggles of civilization, although they're affected as greatly by them as anyone else. And houndsmen are probably the least engaged of that bunch uh so it's a it's a it's a tricky thing do you think that it feels like the culture is one way but do you think that that accurately reflects what people 
the the real consensus of people because it seems you know i see some of the stuff and it seems so loosey-goosey and out of this world out of any world that i've experienced that <laughs> i don't even i i can't imagine that many people believe this well i'm on facebook every day begrudgingly i have to for socratic canine there's a lot of people oh but that that there's enough people talking about it and endorsing it and following it that I'm concerned. Now, does that mean that's everybody? No, because there's a lot of people who aren't speaking who might be there. And there's a lot of people who aren't even there at all on, you know, speaking in the context of social media. So it is tough to use social media as a gauge because it's, there's variables we can't account for, which is, well, are all the people I'm seeing all the people, or is it just the people that are pissed off and really aren't out there enjoying the world, which is why they're on social media, because they have nothing else going on. And in the reality, they might be a much smaller proportion. They might not represent the majority. Um, however, given the nature of their positions and the, the, the sheer aggression in their emotional attacks, uh, the way they weaponize words and weaponize these ideas my concern is for the that silent majority it's not that they're gonna agree with it it's that they're gonna yield to the pressure mm -hmm. because i don't put pressure on people for what they do with their dogs i can I mean, not my monkey not my circus however that phrase goes like whatever do what you do with your dog, man. You got a fat dog who's going to die young because you don't take care of him right? Because you got issues? All right, I feel sorry for your dog. The fuck off. As opposed to the other side, they're actively trying to control what other people do with their dogs or with their lives even. So it's not that I, I'm concerned that the rational masses are believing that shit it's that i'm not too confident at their fortitude and their resilience to stand up when it comes down to their vote to not give in to the peer pressure you know like fear we see fear being weaponized in our culture like if you don't like somebody they say oh you must be afraid of them whether it's a you know a cultural group or a sexual orientation, it's like oh I don't like Bob. What are you scared of Bob because he's got pink hair? No, I don't like Bob because he's an asshole. He's rude. He cuts me off all the time when we talk. Like you know, forget him. Oh, it must be your fear, afraid of him. Well, no, I'm not afraid. And now you're forced to in interact with Bob because you don't want anyone thinking you're afraid of him, right? So it's they're using people's fear of being afraid or their aversion to being labeled as being afraid to sometimes go along with things that they fundamentally don't believe in because they don't want to be labeled as this because now it's been weaponized. That's more concerning to me than the fact that they're not intelligent enough to see that it's horseshit. It's that, you know, I'm not using that type of <laughs> I don't have that leverage. I'm not mm -hmm. trying to use leverage to manipulate them to think a certain way because i don't care what they do i don't care what no it's not yeah. my problem the, the animal rights movement their primary passion and interest is fighting this sort of political fight whereas you know you like 
bite work and another guy likes obedience training and the third guy likes waterfowl hunting and it's it's their you know it's a subsidiary concern to fight the political fight just to continue their lifestyle and their and and what they love and and that's the that's the difficult balance because certain the animal rights people are fully engaged and this is their identity my identity is not fighting for these things it's doing something and i you know i endeavor to fight for them as a sort of uh, subsidiary point something i've noticed about both the, the animal rights movement is they build coalitions between disparate groups uh because they're not they're pragmatists although they're like bizarre idealists and sort of these crazy things that they think in, politically they're pragmatists and they're able to uh subsume uh differences in order to achieve a common goal and it's something i've noticed that hunters and houndsmen are particularly bad at in that we're often as a group very idealistic and reluctant to build coalitions between you know oh you so and so thinks this and i think you know a slight variation of that no way that we can work together uh you have run a successful dog or human training business so you must frequently come into contact with people you disagree with don't like how do you navigate and i i think i've heard you talk about you've sort of got a filter on it to really if someone's not interested in learning you know you're not going to take them but how do you navigate working with you know sort of dissimilar people or people you outright don't like and don't agree with typically dog owners who are polar opposite of my value system my principles of dog ownership I will never work with them because it just, they want nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. Like I don't have to navigate that. What I do have to navigate and I've been continually working on that is within my side of trainers. And I, I hate labels because I, I, I think they're silly um, and they're restrictive, but I fall in the category of what's called balanced trainers, right? Like they have to put labels on people. I'm a balanced trainer. What does that mean? I because I have horrible balance and coordination. It's rather ironic. Um, it means I will praise a dog for doing good and I will punish a dog for doing bad. That makes that's the balanced crowd. We use punishment. We will we will protect a dog's life. By teaching him never to do something again and it might be an uncomfortable lesson but he'll live a much more comfortable life well that group of trainers who fall under that there is such diversity <laughs> like oh my gosh that spectrum is so broad that it, it 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 goes right along with what you're saying like that's what you have to navigate and sometimes you might have to recognize or collaborate with or somehow or at the very least not tear down a trainer who you might not agree with some things he or she does because they might have more influence over that fence sitting population right and i've had to personally deal with that with several individuals in the years of you know some balance traders hate that person well you know what i'm not gonna hate him you know why he's on the same team because there's a war going on i may not agree with everything she does i may not agree with everything he does but by golly they're representing our side of the fence fairly well 
Do they have some flaws in their training, perhaps? Yeah. Could they do this better? I could. There's a lot of things I can do better, right? There's some things I'm better at than other people, and some things I'm. It's a future strength for me. If they're good for the fight that needs to be fought, at the very least, we can't tear them down. And in the in the balanced community, there's a lot of tearing down at each other's throats. It's it's. Oh, look at how how he does that. And now he does that. It's like, don't you realize one day that line in the sand is going to be clear and they're standing on our side. So maybe we should help them become better in the areas they're weak in rather than tear them down for being weak in them. Because same team, man, same team. Mm -hmm. So my foundational belief is that the closer you are to something, the better you can understand it. And that belief is constantly challenged by popular dog ownership. People who love their dogs spend enormous amounts of time with their dogs and think about their dogs a lot. And yet, in my opinion, misunderstand the very nature of that animal so fundamentally. And it really confuses me. I, I, you know, I, I think that I've been off base in some of the things I have thought about dogs, but never, never far, never far, you know, so, uh, how can we be so close to something? And understand it so little. Easy. <laughs> so you said something in there that I I talk about a lot. And it's a, I don't know, catchphrase or it's one of my memes that I've shared numerous times. You mentioned, you know, they love their dogs so much and they're such a big part of their life. I frequently like to raise the question, do you love your dog? Or do you love how your dog makes you feel? Because those are two fundamentally different things. And I believe the answer to your question is that they don't actually love the dog. And when I say that stuff, oh, when I say that stuff at Facebook, oh my gosh, I always look out my window and put one in the chamber because I'm ready for them to come get me um, because they get triggered at that. It's the essential and fundamental dysfunction of that individual's relationship with themselves, let alone the world around them that contributes to that. It's no different than all the failed relationships people have with each other. How many people get into a romantic relationship with somebody only to two years in, it's misery. Well, one of the main reasons is many people get in relationships with people, with another person. They don't love that person. They love who they think that person is. They love who they want that person to be. They love what that person provides for them in their relationship. None of those are the same as loving the person. They don't even know who their partner is. I mean, again, that's like the really common one. You know, it's like, wait a minute, you knew I liked, you knew I liked to go fishing every Sunday before we were even dating. Why are we a year in? You're mad at me for going fishing on Sunday. Like, you knew that was me. Well, I was hoping you'd eventually give it up. What what the, where'd you get that idea from? Oh, you were hoping I'd be a guy who doesn't fish on Sundays. I mean, 
and, and that's one like many people can relate to, right? Well, that's not knowing and accepting who you're in a relationship with and getting in a relationship for the wrong reasons. Many more and more and more and more people today are getting dogs and they have no idea what a dog is. Why don't they have any idea what a dog is? Well, what they think a dog is, is what they saw other people projecting on social media, which is a, an overweight because canine obesity is just rampant right now. They see a fat, sick, lazy dog cuddling with someone else because uh, people get the dogs for the selfies, man. They get the dog so they can virtue signal that they're morally superior by having this animal that they shower and spoil with affection, even though that hurts the dog. Um, but it's because it's been so normalized, they think that's what life with a dog is. And there is a fact, it is a fact that petting a dog will make you feel good. They, I mean, there's objective, non-debatable data to show that your body will release oxytocin, which is the love hormone, for lack of a better way to describe it. Your body will release oxytocin when you pet a dog or you make eye contact with a dog. And the dog actually can release oxytocin as well. So you feel good when you pet a dog. That's why I call these people who like, like they want to, they see you in public with your dog and like, oh, can I come pet your dog? It's like, no oxytocin junkie. You want to get high? Get your own dog. You're not getting high on my dog, but they want their fix. They want to feel good. That's not about them loving your dog. That's them loving what it feels like to pet a dog. That's completely different. So people are living with these animals, not because they love the true nature of Canis familiaris, or they love the, 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 the attributes that that particular breed has. Oh, no. They get it because they think it's cool and it feels good. And when they post pictures on social media, they will get tons of attention. Never mind who the dog is. That's why I'm always saying I got two things I say at like the close of all my videos. Drop your ego before you pick up that leash and always honor thy dog. Honoring the dog means accepting who the dog is and appreciating it. Because if you don't accept them for who they are, who is it that you love? It ain't them. It's this notion. It's this idea that you love. In addition to all the feedback you get by virtue signaling as a dog owner. And that's how you can live with an animal for so long and have no understanding of it at all. Because if you had an understanding of it, you wouldn't be asking, why does my dog call me on leash? Like you would be asking like the most ridiculously fundamental basic questions about dog behavior, like, why did my people kill my cat? They were friends. Like, what? Huh? What? You, you, you even owned one of those? Like, why did you own one? You shouldn't have one of those. You know, like, if you're asking that question, you never should have had one in the first place. You know, you know, why does my Tibetan Mastiff want to jump through the window at the postman? Like, why do you have a Tibetan Mastiff? Like, why? So you got a dog that was bred for centuries to hate. Anything that isn't part of its family. And like, that's what you, now you want to know why it hates people that aren't part of your family. Like, uh, it's like getting a fish and asking me, why does he swim so much? Like, come on. 
Yeah. So that's a, so that's a soapbox. That's what I so that's what I deal with every day. <laughs> that was that was great. It, it, it's a hard thing to it's a hard thing to do to sort of critically introspect and especially when you've filled holes with with that dog. You know, I've done it. I've sort of uh filled parts of my life that weren't missing with dogs and it, there's a and and it's it's hard to critically reconcile with that, but you eventually you have to reconcile because things start going wrong. And if you have a a good dog, big things will start going wrong. Uh, but it's it's interesting that the hounds I've gotten with with an express purpose outside of myself, and I think that I've been able to understand them on the terms that they really have. They've turned temperamentally; they're just much more balanced, uh, better dogs because I've. I think naturally honored them as opposed to filling my own holes with them. Oh, absolutely. Um, I share my social media a lot. There's a dog in my life. His name is Duncan. He's a little black scruffy. He's got a beard like mine. And I, sh the reason why I share him so much in my posts and I talk about him a lot is so people can also realize I understand where they're coming from. I'm not speaking from a place of, ignorance like i don't understand how you feel i i trained under and learned you know coming up with dogs i had a lot of guys who like their response was well i don't understand your problem with this or just do this with the leash or just to, what do you mean the dog doesn't respect you uh, he respects me they didn't understand what i was going through with the dog so it's really important to me to the people that i talk to and work with that they uh, they know and believe that i actually know what it's like to be absolutely intoxicated and enamored with a dog. Duncan is that dog for me. Like, he does something to me. I get high when I pet him. I absolutely get high. I get drunk, whatever you want to call it. Like, I have a dysfunctional adoration of that animal. However, I love him. So, because I love him, well, he's not my dog. In our relationship, when I do get to interact with him, like there are boundaries and he does respect me. And I make it, I have to remind him of that occasionally, you know, and luckily he doesn't push the boundaries at all. He's a real easy dog, but I make sure I earned my high, right? Like I make sure our relationship is where it needs to be before I take something out of the bank. And a relationship with a dog, think of it like a bank, you know, that pet that you're giving because you know it makes you feel good. Before you take that money out, did, did you put money in? Is there money to even take out? And that money you put in is establishing boundaries, having trust, having limitations on the behavior, and having earned the dog's respect. Once you get that, all right, you want to take a little bit out for yourself for some fun money? Go for it. And for me, that's cuddling with Duncan. Like, he's the only dog in over 25 years with dogs that has ever slept in my bed ever oh, you're getting ever. soft ever there's there's compromises though he has a bed that he must sleep in on the bed and the minute he gets out i'm in his shit i'm in his i'm hey and as soon, i'll come in the room he might be on the bed i'll walk in the room he sees me he gets up and gets in his bed on the bed because he, he already he already knows right like he, if i'm in the room you you better and you want to be on that bed so we've established some of those parameters mm -hmm. but i can relate i do get that high it does feel good 
And that has helped me immensely when I am working with a dog owner who for the first time in their life, they're hearing somebody, me, telling them, stop petting the dog so much, get the dog out of the bed. Listen, I know how good it feels. And then I'll share a story with Duncan so they know that I'm not just talking from some other planet at them. Like, no, I know how you feel. I feel the same way, but this is what we got to do. Yeah. You're not just some harsh German taskmistress. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. So can I, I originally had this framed as a sort of negative question, which is can a life spent with dogs impede long-term relationships with people? Because it's something I see in myself is that I sort of, I, I spend so much time with dogs that I maybe expect different things from them and I go out into the world and it's, uh, you, you have a lot of contact with people. So maybe that keeps you grounded, but I'll reframe it as can a life spent with dogs. How does a life spent with dogs affect your long-term relationships with people? I, I kind of came to you because I feel like you're, I'm more interested in the wisdom that you've gained. I, I really find dogs very interesting, but I think you've gained a lot of wisdom about people in your experiences with them through dogs. One of the most common um, testimonials or testimonies of my students, the, the most common feedback that I get in terms of like what they've enjoyed from working with me or being part of my program, the Canine Blueprint, um, is the relationship with other, with people, with humans has improved. Now, improving doesn't mean they have more friends. Oftentimes it means having less friends. They have, and learning how to effectively communicate with a dog and build a functional relationship with a dog, you have to learn about functional relationships and those are universal. So a life spent, a functional life spent with dogs, I believe firmly will improve your relationships with people. Now that, but a big part of that might mean not associating with people that you might have associated with otherwise, or learning what a toxic relationship is. Learning how to, a, a big thing I get from a lot of my clients is they actually get a concept of setting a boundary. Like what is a boundary in a relationship? It's, it's drawing a line in the sand and saying, if you cross this line, there will be a consequence. Now with humans, that might mean removing them from your life, taking them out of your circle. But they build those skills with their dog. And then they see how it makes the, them and the dog flourish. And then they start, it just starts happening in their life around them. And some that means some relationships are going to go away. And that means other relationships, though, are going to get stronger. They're, they're, they're going to get stronger. Because once you start drawing boundaries, Respect is, is an inevitable outcome if the person person is worth reciprocating that respect to. A worthy, honorable, respectable person will respect your boundaries and the fact that you set them in the first place. So a, a functional life spent with dogs, I believe, will enhance and strengthen the relationships you have with people around you and your communication with them, being objective, getting rid of emotion, not holding grudges. Can't hold a grudge on a dog. Doesn't work. It'll mess up the relationship. Well, what's the point of holding a grudge with a person? If, if, you, if you're gonna if you're gonna be sick of that dog every time you see him, get rid of him. It's not fair to him for him to stay with you. There might be someone else who's gonna appreciate him more. Let's say that dog killed your favorite chicken. 
And every time you look at him, you think about that damn dog killing your favorite chicken. Well, you know what? Rather than make that dog suffer living under you constantly looking at him for killing the chicken, maybe he might send him to someone in the house who doesn't have chickens. They don't know about that murder that took place that night. Like, why have him live under that grudge? Well, the same thing with people. Like, why hold a grudge? Why be in a relationship with someone, friendship, whatever? If you got a grudge, like, no, that, that needs to go away. So all of these things are universal. Having a dog is just a wonderful place to put them in practice. Building balanced people. <laughs> One dog at a time. Thank you, dude. Excellent. I, and you know what? That's my favorite part. That's the, That's my favorite part of what I do. I enjoy the feedback that I get frequently about someone got a promotion at work that they wouldn't have applied for if it wasn't for what they learned in my dog training program, or they've improved their relationship with their kids. I've had people tell me they've improved their relationship with their exes. You know, usually they have a, you know, co-parenting, they have a child together and I've gotten feedback about those relationships improving just because they're removing the emotion from it. They're being more objective. They're communicating better. Like, I've learned that's my favorite part of what I do and why Socratic canine is the way it is and how, I mean, it's an online program. I don't touch leashes. I work with people from literally all over the, I mean, I, I met you, you know, like people all over the world and well, how do I train their dogs? I don't. I train as well as educate, coach and support and sometimes counsel them and, and, I, I love that part of it. Mm -hmm. I, I have my fun with my dogs. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the way it should be. Awesome, man. Thank you. I think that was excellent. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate the invite to be on the show. I hope the listeners got something out of it. If not, maybe a small chuckle uh, at the very <laughs> I'm least. Sure they did. Uh, we'll, we'll see, man. You know, it's uh, everything that has been on this network is like super hound hunting orientated and the first interview i did was with this public lands journalist and th this is the second one and i think it's i think it's uh they and they they like the first one that's coming out next week and i think that uh you know hopefully even if it's outside of people's ballpark like they still find it interesting well you know there's a lot of overlap but there's a lot of things we all can learn from each other and I would love to be able to, in one day, one day it's going to happen. I'm going to get out your way and I, I oh, want to yeah. go hunt with you. I want to watch. I want to learn. I want to see. Um, there, there's so, I mean, dogs are dogs and behavior is behavior. And seeing how those principles are applied in such different contexts to me is fascinating. And you know what? There are some things that I think maybe a couple houndsmen could learn from a pet dog trainer in terms of relationship with their dog. Who knows? Oh, and man, there's a ton that I could shit. learn. <laughs> Trust there's me, there's a lot they could learn. <laughs> there's a ton I can learn from watching them interact with their dogs. Oh, dude, because they might be the only people, at least the only ones that I know of, who have seen so many dogs in a lifetime. If you start yes. hound hunting when you're seven years old and you hound hunt until you're 77, you've had 70 years of 20 to 30 dogs at a time. You know, and they, and they are That's very... Wisdom. And they are very genetics heavy, you know, they, because you have 20 to 30 dogs, they often don't like, you, you know, it's, it's an equation of time versus dogs, right? Mm -hmm. And they often don't put in, you know, an enormous amount of time to get 100%. Like this dog better be giving me 75 to start, you know, and, and maybe I'll take it from there. Uh, 
but it's just an unbelievable thing to have seen, you know, 2000 dogs in your lifetime or something ridiculous like that. Yes. Yes. And I absolutely respect that experience and the wisdom gained from that experience. Um, the first time I went to visit Bob Owens at Lone Duck, you know, I didn't, I didn't talk. Like the first couple hours, and there were a couple other really rep, really well-known trainers there. I just sat there quiet. And he I remember he came to me, and he's like, Hey, you got any questions? I go, I got a lot of questions. He's like, What do you think about this? I go, Oh no, I'm not here to share information. Like, I'm the kid here. Like, I don't know about this. So I'm gonna keep my mouth shut unless I'm asking a question politely at the appropriate time. Like, I'm old school. You know, you learn by shutting your mouth and opening your eyes and ears. And I I think our his and my relationship blossomed from there because he's like, whoa, I respect that. But no, I want to hear your input. And then we had some amazing conversations. Um, so when I go into other worlds like that, I am still the inquisitive child that I've always been. Mm-hmm. But I also know, I know my place. And that's why I've been able to learn as much as I have because, you know, people are willing to share stuff with me because I'm oh. not going to be a douche. Like, oh. no, I respect what you do. And show me let me listen do i gotta pick up poop for a while like what do you need me to do i think it's all going to be super familiar to you like when you get a yogged or a patterdale or something like because it's still training you know you're doing yep. something different but it's like environmental you're like you're you're helping this thing grow as opposed to planting it you know yep. and but uh but it's a really man i i caught my first couple bears this summer solo dogs got on more with when we we're hunting with people and like, I don't know if I've ever been happier than when they treat that first bear. You know, I've put like 3,000 mountain miles on to get that mm-hmm. point. And I haven't trained them anything. You know, like I've put them in places and sort of like You've encouraged them. them. To do their thing. Yeah. You've allowed them to be dogs. So I look yeah. forward to getting out there with you someday um, and, and learning as much as I can. And for anybody listening, I got, you know, you know this like i got a lot to say and if they happen to be on social media definitely jump over on my page uh i don't sugarcoat anything especially on instagram and my instagram's easy it's at k d and matthews mm-hmm. with one t um and um you they might get a couple chuckles over there <laughs> i think they will I'll, I'll link it in the show notes too awesome awesome man thank you very much for doing this kd i really appreciate it oh thank you man i had a blast Thank you.